Today's reading is Psalm 90, which you'll find on page 599 of the Bibles on the seats. Page 599, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due to you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servant, your splendor to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, it's good to be able to look at this psalm with you this morning. How often, I wonder, do you hear the words, there just aren't enough hours in the day? I wonder if it's the sort of expression you use out of frustration that you don't have the time to do everything you would like to do. But in our culture, there is an almost 
overwhelming universal sense that we don't have enough time. So many people I speak to say, I'm just so busy at the moment. I'd love to come to church more, but there's just so much to do. I find myself saying, sorry I haven't done this or that. I just haven't had the time. Of course, I have had the time. I've just spent it doing something else. Those in work can easily find that they're working longer and longer hours, maybe not getting paid for them, but afraid to say no because of the vulnerability of their job. So time for their marriage, for their family, for God gets squeezed. This psalm, Psalm 90, is all about time and it shows us that pressure on our time is not new. It predates the communications revolution that has perhaps contributed to the pressures on our time. And it shows that we've been aware of this problem for at least 3,000 years. The psalm falls into three sections. There's an introduction focusing on God's transcendence uh, that we sang about in the first hymn. There's the heart of the psalm that reflects on the painful realities of our mortal life. And then there's a concluding prayer. I'm going to start by looking at the middle section, the painful realities in verse 3 through to verse 12. This central section of the psalm tells us unequivocally that we're living under the wrath of God. This is something that we don't like to think about. I once attended a church for a while where there was one preacher who essentially had one sermon that he used time and again. It boiled down to, God loves you, everything's going to be okay. But this psalm doesn't allow that. The the historical setting, the the events that caused the psalm to be written uh, are uncertain. Uh, you'll You'll see above the text of the psalm that it's attributed to Moses, the man of God. So it's around 3,300 years old. But he had a very eventful life, so it's hard to tie it down more specifically than that. But it seems likely that he wrote it when God sent poisonous snakes among the, the Israelites during the time in the wilderness as a punishment for their rebellion against him. You can read about it in Numbers 21 if you'd like to. But it might have been one of the other occasions when the Israelites rebelled against God's loving authority. In fact, it it doesn't matter what the event was because the focus is not on the rebellion but on God's wrath that is provoked by it. I wonder what you thought as you listened to the psalm being read. Phrases like verse 7, we are consumed by your anger and Verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? Was there a bit of you thinking, why couldn't he have chosen Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd? Or Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the quiet hills. Why this one? Part of the problem is that we possibly think that God's wrath is like our anger. It isn't. We tend to get angry when our feelings are hurt or when we're tired or stressed or irritable. God's wrath is permanent. It's fixed. It's his constant hostility towards everything that is wrong in his world. 
And that's a good thing, because unlike a, a human who is given to angry outbursts, we don't have to worry about get, catching God on a bad day. His wrath always burns against sin. Also, if we're on the receiving end of anger, we often feel that we're being picked on. But this is a universal state of humankind. We all live under God's wrath. This doesn't mean that we're particularly wicked compared to everyone else. It means that we're living in a fallen world, the world between the curse of Genesis chapter 3 and the new creation of Revelation chapter 21. And it's essential to understand this, not, not just as an intellectual concept, but as the reality of our standing before God. We are outside of the Eden where he placed us. Not because we took a wrong turning on one of the garden paths, but because we were thrown out. That is the truth of our situation. That's why so much of what we see in the world seems out of joint. So the psalmist describes here six things he sees as wrong, six things that remind him of our fallenness, six signs of God's wrath. First, there's our pathetic end in verse 3. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. No matter how great or insignificant a life has been, everybody goes the same way. Tomorrow, millions of us will watch Her Late Majesty's funeral with all the pomp and ceremony befitting a person of her position. And on the other hand, a couple of months ago, I took a funeral with just a handful of people present. It was all over in 20 minutes. But the end result is the same. Dust. Whether that end comes quickly in a cremator or slowly in a grave or royal crypt, every body is nothing but a collection of dust. There's the tininess of our earthly life in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. God created humans to live with him forever. We only die because of sin, just as God warned. But our, with our short lives comes short-sightedness. We focus our attention on our brief earthly existence instead of eternity. And if a thousand years are like an evening to God, then our few years are like a click of the fingers. There's the fragility of life, verses 5 and 6. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. Moses says that our lives are like grass, new in the morning, and by the evening it's dead and swept away. It's not hard to picture so soon after the recent drought. I won't be surprised if tomorrow's funeral includes uh, Isaac Watts's uh, famous hymn, O God, Our Help, in ages past, which is based on this psalm. 
But I think Watts doesn't quite capture the sense when he writes, time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. It's a beautiful, poetic couplet. We picture a a sunny autumn morning with copper-colored leaves drifting into the mist on the stream of time. But it's not time that bears us away. It's God. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. We live under God's righteous wrath. Then there's death itself, verses 7 and 8. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Humanists will tell you that death is simply the natural conclusion to life. It's not true. Again, God made us to live forever, but he made it very clear to Adam and Eve that if they rejected his loving rule, the result would be death. And what happened? Well, wet paint syndrome kicked in. Have you heard of wet paint syndrome? The desire to disobey a direct warning. So you see a sign saying wet paint, and there's a part of every one of us that has to find out if it's true. The psalmist shows us death in the light of sin. Therefore, we must understand that death is judgment. Why do humanists tell people not to fear death? Because for all their denial of God's existence, they still have a deep awareness of death's connection to sin. To fear death is to fear God, and death ends our opportunity for repentance. We as followers of the Lord Jesus do not fear death because our sin has been dealt with once and for all. Then there's toil and trouble in verses 9 and 10. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. The great lie of earthly authorities is that things will get better. It was one party's election slogan 25 years ago. Things can only get better. It was no more true then than it is ever. Improvement is not certain. Advancement is not inevitable. Look at the number of civilizations in history that have collapsed one after another. Indeed, many people think that our own civilization is on the point of collapse now. Life is tough because we live in a fallen world. Yes, we typically get to live 70 or 80 years, but they're full of toil. And when the toil stops, then there's retirement, but then our troubles tend to increase. We see the baby taken to hospital. We see the elderly lady stuck in hospital. We see the young man broken by depression, the old man broken by family problems, the teenager overdosing on drugs, the child struggling to get an accurate diagnosis 
in order to receive the right drugs. The message of this psalm is not that there are any, that those people are any more sinful than the rest of us. But this is what we must expect in a fallen world. And finally, in this section, verse 11, kind of sums up by speaking of the blindness of mankind towards God's wrath. Who knows the power of your anger? People invent all kinds of uh, answers, reasons for their troubles, karma, fate, even a previous life in, the, in which they did the wrong for which they are now suffering. The true answer is staring us in the faith. It is the wrath of God. And the right response to that is one of reverence or fear, not the nightmarish kind of fear of something that we imagine, but the recognition that we're in the wrong before a perfectly just God. Instead, some people just look away pretending God's not there. Others refuse to pray the prayer of verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom because they can't cope with the idea that their days have been numbered. How can Moses, the psalmist, bear to spell this out so starkly? How can we bear to hear it spelled out so bluntly? Well, the answer is by reading it in its context. The context is, on the one hand, faith in God's transcendence, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, transcendence isn't a word we use every day. Well, I don't anyway. But try as I might, I can't think of a, a, a different word that puts it more simply. We've thought already about a common misunderstanding of God's wrath, and this raises a common misunderstanding of God himself. All too easily, we can find ourselves thinking of God as a, a very big or a very old man, person. This kind of Attitude is someone sometimes expressed by someone saying, if I were God, or complaining of some, some action of God saying, it's not fair. Transcendence attempts to express the degree of difference between us and God. So, for example, he is transcendent in his lifespan. He is eternal we immediately perhaps think that that means he's very old. But that's inadequate. He's not old or young. Time simply doesn't apply to him. The psalmist says, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, you are God. The confusion of tenses there isn't confusion, it's deliberate. Before the mountains were born, you are God. That being so, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. That means I have somewhere I can escape to. 
someone I can escape to, a refuge from all these problems in verses 3 to 12. A believer is someone who recognizes their need to escape God's wrath. But this isn't escapism, refusing to face reality. No, the believer faces reality and recognizes there is one possible escape route from the wrath of God, and that is God himself. The Christian knows this doesn't exempt them from the toil and trouble of that middle section. They will be present in the Christian life as much as any life, but they become bearable. The knowledge that God's love is our refuge saves us, dashing from one false shelter to another, drugs, sex, gambling, They're they're cardboard shelters that might keep the rain off for a while, but then the whole lot comes crashing down. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So faith in God's transcendence is part of the context. The second part is faith in God's grace. Verses 3 to 17. In these closing verses, we see that the psalmist is not just recounting how God has dealt with past generations, but also wants to bring blessing to future generations. So having first recognized his unworthiness to ask anything of God, how many of us do that, I wonder, he begins his prayer to God by asking him to relent. God's wrath is righteous, but Moses is eager to remind God also of his promise of blessing. So he asks for three blessings, compassion, love, and favor. Verse 13, have compassion on your servants. How can Moses ask for compassion when he's acknowledged the justice of God's wrath? Well, because God has already shown compassion. He heard the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt. He's brought them out of Egypt. Despite all their grumbling, he's renewed his promise of a land that they will possess. Moses asks for compassion because God is a compassionate God. Then verse 14 Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Being under God's wrath feels like a long, dark night and Moses longs for morning. He knows that God's love has not ceased whilst the people have been under God's wrath. Your unfailing love, as he puts it, But he longs to experience that love once again in order that they may know joy. He's not asking to be made happy. Happiness can be so superficial as we distract ourselves with nonstop entertainment and constantly refusing to face reality. He asks for God's love to bring joy, knowing that only God's love satisfies The third blessing is favor in verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God 
rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. The psalmist has acknowledged that he and all he can achieve is fleeting, swept away like a moan, verse 9. He asks now for God's favor or blessing on the work of his hand so that the toil that was fragile and fleeting should become established, set in place forever. This is about where we focus our energies, isn't it? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Work that is established is kingdom work. Not so long ago, I was counseling someone who told me that they felt their life was pointless. They would make no mark on the world. I replied, well, it was through you that Fred came to faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, I didn't do very much, he said. Maybe not, I replied, but it's still because of you that Fred's eternal destiny has changed from hell to heaven. Not just for Fred but for everyone that Fred leads to Jesus. That's not just making your mark on the world. That's making your mark on eternity. So why do we struggle to think like Moses the psalmist today? Why does that middle section make us so uncomfortable? I think it's partly because the church has largely lost sight of God's wrath. It's not fashionable to talk about it. Perhaps because we're worried about the accusation that we're, if we talk about it, we're trying to frighten people into the kingdom. Nine years ago, I was at a diocesan service. In fact, if I remember rightly, uh, Philip was there as well, sitting quite close to me. And uh, one of the hymns was, In Christ Alone. And the archdeacon who was leading the service had changed the line the wrath of God was satisfied because, as he told me afterwards when I challenged him, taking my courage in both hands, as you do with archdeacons, he said some people cannot bear to think about the wrath of God. But if we all we talk about is God's unfailing love and mercy, and then someone turns on the TV news, they see the two don't add up. We must teach about wrath, sin, the fall, our exclusion from Eden in order to teach people that this world stands under the wrath of God and that there is no escape except to God through the cross of Jesus. And then also our modern world tells us that we, we can solve our own problems. Science can rescue us from some problems that earlier generations couldn't face. Well, that's true to some extent. Capitalism tells us that wealth can solve our problems. That's true to some extent. 
Politicians tell us that democracy can solve our problems. Well, that's true to some extent. But the root of our problems is the human heart. And against that, science, wealth, and politics are powerless. Our only hope is God's compassion, love, and favor embodied in the Lord Jesus and ultimately expressed in his death on the cross in our place. So if the church tells us wrath doesn't exist and the world tells us we can solve our own problems, it's no wonder so many people struggle to come to terms with the world in which we find ourselves. The world so painfully and yet accurately portrayed here. Our right response is verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. As we said, shall we pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that we are living under your wrath and that your wrath is a righteous response to our sin. Help us to have that heart of wisdom that sees that you are our only hope, that it is through the cross of Jesus and only there that we can escape your wrath because he bore it in our place. Let us not be afraid to tell people not only of your love, but also of your wrath and their need for Jesus' rescue. We ask this for his glory. Amen.